Acts chapter 20. We resume our study of the advance of the kingdom as it's recorded for us historically in the Bible in this book of Acts. It's a history lesson on how Jesus kept his promise to build his church. We see it unfold in the book of Acts as these new believers form these fledgling churches and begin to grow and prosper and the name of Jesus is made known around the empire. And it continues on till today. So we want to learn from Acts chapter 20 this morning in a text that introduced us to the wolves hunting the flock. We don't deal much with wolves in Missouri. Not that we would never see them, but it'd be rare. But the farmers more in the Northwest, certainly Alaska, those who have herds in Europe, uh, have given us a number of dog breeds that are good at defending herds and flocks from wolves. You may have heard of the Afghan hound. Not the prettiest dog around, but its big long hair hides a massive frame and it kind of billows in the wind to make a pretty impressive warning to the wolves that try to attack certain flocks. You've heard of a mastiff, perhaps. Great Pyrenees. These are some of the breeds that are used, especially in Europe, to defend flocks from wolves. Sometimes just by their large size, their presence is enough to fend off enemies and predators. Other times it's their massive bark that will chase away predators or alert the shepherds or farmers. And at times, some of these breeds have been known to go head-to-head with a wolf in defense of the flock. Well, that's the imagery that the apostle, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings to mind to help us think of the oversight that is being conducted by the eldership in the local church congregation. This illustration of wolves lurking in the dark, approaching a flock, and we all know their intent, it's not to engage in conversation, but to wreak havoc, to to find prey on which to feed. This is the great threat that is now brought into the context of the local church, that wolves, false teachers would come and seek to harm the flock, which we're told in verse 28 is the very church of God purchased with his own blood. So the elders are challenged with this task of oversight and care. We studied verse 27 by itself, or verse 28 rather, last time we were in Acts before our Christmas break. Today we resume this text asking this question, what should a congregation expect from its overseers? What should a congregation expect from its overseers? And by asking that question, it's not intended for us to think we sit back and expect something from someone else in the sense of entitlement. Rather, I'm giving you a heads up. You should expect oversight in your life as a Christian when you join a local church and that oversight is going to ask something of you, even demand something of you. So when we ask this question, what should a congregation expect? It's as if we're giving you a warning, like this is what's coming. And you need to be ready for it. As our text unfolds, I think we see this oversight in action. And it helps us answer this question. As a congregation, what should we expect from oversight or from our overseers? So let's look at what was read earlier for us, first at verse 29 and 30, to see what a congregation should expect from its overseers. 
Paul writes, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Number one, a congregation should expect to be warned about false teaching. That's an expectation every church member should rightly have. They should expect from time to time warnings about false teaching. It may be books that are published. It may be philosophies that creep in. It may be the world's most recent infatuation and some kind of humanism. But we should expect to be warned. We see that through the letters of the New Testament, especially in Colossians, where Paul warns the church not to be spoiled, not to be ruined by the philosophies of the world, by the culture that's out there, by traditions that we would bring into the church and add to the gospel. And in there, he gives us that old expression, not to be corrupted by the rudiments of the world, the most elementary, basic building blocks of their thinking. Don't buy into any of it. And the warning there is that spoiling happens subtly. It's like putting that tangerine in the back of the refrigerator and you forget about it. And months later, there's this shriveled up mass there and you don't even know what it is. The spoiling took its effect over time. It was slow and subtle, but steady. A congregation should expect its overseers then to warn them about false teaching. Now, I want, to, I want you to look at this false teaching that's talked about here and how it's described so that we would know what we're actually being warned about. Look first at the means of this false teaching coming into the church. Paul writes that these fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, even men from among yourselves, and they're speaking twisted things. Now, that word twist or pervert could, could stand alone, and it could be somebody could obviously come in and just say blasphemous, perverted things, but that's not the kind of subtlety that's being addressed here in the word twisted. What's being talked about here is what we see modeled by the devil himself. When he comes as a friendly soul to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and just asks seemingly harmless questions. Oh, did, did God really say that? Well, did he say you couldn't even touch it? Or, and, and it? And it was misleading and foggy. And Adam and Eve weren't precise. They didn't recognize the twisting desire of the serpent. We see it again when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, where the devil would cite actual words from the Bible, but out of context and, and in a twisted way, a way that didn't represent the truth as it was delivered. And the lesson we learn from Jesus is that we must feed on God's word alone in order to withstand the subtle attacks of twisted teaching. Because most likely the churches that we know that preach the gospel aren't going to fall in a day. It's not going to be in one message where everything we just affirmed in the Apostles' Creed is overhauled for some crazy new doctrines. But likely it's going to be with minor missteps, intentional or not, that, that subtly twist important doctrines. Paul gives a warning. He says, even though it may be subtle, though it may even arise up from among the congregation, somebody reads a bestseller, from the Christian bookstore, not knowing that it's not really anchored in biblical truth, 
and begins sharing that with their friends, and this is what they've learned, and suddenly there's a, there's a weird idea, perhaps about sanctification, or perhaps about what the atonement really accomplished, or some theological matter that is a matter of truth, and now, now something false has arisen from right among the congregation. And our text is reminding us that the role of overseers is to protect the flock from false doctrine, but also to be instructing them in the truth so that they will know false doctrine when they hear it. So that they'll recognize twisting and distortion of truth. So that they, like the Berean Christians, would be mindful to go back to Scripture and search it and see, is this really in line with what I'm hearing from this most recent book or that sermon even from the pulpit on Sunday? Always going to Scripture to see what has God said. False teachers will distort the truth in order that they might draw away believers to their teaching. You could look back or you can listen to Acts chapter 13 as Saul and Barnabas are sent out on their missionary journey they soon encounter an interesting fellow, Elymas, the magician. Our text says, But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Elymas, he's this one who was seeking to turn away people from the truth, it says. Saul says to him, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? We may need to get better as a congregation in being able to recognize when somebody, a teacher on the radio, an author of a book, whatever it is, when we start hearing things, we might need to get better at saying, you know what, that doesn't line up with truth. That's twisting the truth. That's not any good for us. Oh, there might be something to glean in that book, but I can probably find that in some other source that's a little better. Starting with God's word to us. False teachers will twist the truth in order to draw people away to themselves. But our text has already told us in verse 28 that the church belongs to God. It's God's church. So you also need to beware of becoming a follower of so-and-so, a fan of so-and-so, always starting every sentence with so-and-so said in his podcast. Just get to the truth of it. If you're going to share it with somebody, fully digest that truth, see it in Scripture, thank God for the teacher you heard it from or the book you read it in, but get to the truth and share that lest we become people who gravitate to them. We won't be so upset and out of sorts then when we find out that that teacher or that author isn't always quite as accurate as we'd like them to be. And we haven't put all our eggs in that basket. We've simply appreciated something we learned, but we learned it from Scripture. We anchored ourselves there. These warnings against false teaching may seem more relevant to, to other people, those that don't have a church home and are kind of wandering, or churches that maybe aren't preaching the gospel every week, some kind of liberal denomination. But the reality is, the liberal denominations we know so well in American culture began as pretty solid evangelical Bible-preaching denominations and over time failed to hear the warning of false teaching that would creep in and draw people away. So be people of the word, because the end of false teaching is harm to the flock. The means of it is distorting the truth and drawing people away, but the end is always the same. Harm to the flock. Fierce wolves will come in among you, 
not sparing the flock. Now, if we look at that text honestly, we realize that's just masking the carnage that wolves leave behind. By saying the wolves won't spare the flock, what does that mean in the affirmative? It means they'll devour the flock. So you've seen the nature videos, and it's not pretty. You know, the the beautiful snow-covered meadows where the flocks were when the wolves come, you know, there's pretty red Christmas color there in the field. It's carnage. It's just kind of said nicely here, not sparing the flock means they devour the flock. I love it when our dog gets its toy or in the tug of war, it gets it and it shakes it violently. Well, that's because instinctively that animal was made to like rip flesh from a carcass and devour it. It's, it's made to pull and rip and tear. That's what it does for its survival. That's what false teaching does to the church. It latches on to a member and it begins to rip them away from the body. That's the picture here. Now it comes a little more gently, not sparing the flock, but false teaching will pull people away. And you've probably all experienced this somewhere in your church background. Somebody that doesn't show up quite as regularly, and then they're gone for a month or so, and you ask them what's up, and and they have all these excuses, and then they start sharing some crazy ideas, and, and you've lived through it. Fierce wolves picking off some of the flock, and they're no longer there. A congregation should expect to be warned about false teaching. And I should also warn you about the warning. (laughs) Sometimes you won't like it. Sometimes you're going to be defensive because you have that favorite teacher or podcast, or you thought that book really stirred your heart and someone else is saying, that's garbage. (laughs) You need to be ready to hear that and maybe engage in the conversations. Why? I didn't even see that in that book. Can you help me understand why that was problematic? And be ready to grow through it, but just know. And I can tell you from experience, you latch on to something and and maybe in some way there was truth there and it did help you, but you like swore your allegiance to it now. And you don't have to do that with anything but the word. So don't be surprised when you feel defensive when warned about false teaching because you bought into something and maybe didn't even know where that author or where that teaching might lead. So when names are named or titles of books are named, be ready. That, that, that's a warning that you should hear and be ready to heed as well. So elders are tasked with maintaining this doctrinal purity in the church, protecting the flock from false teaching. And so the congregation should expect to be warned. Hey, think that through a little bit more. Hey, there's some good stuff in that book, but be careful. That author tends to go down this path. We should get good at that kind of stuff. That means we're getting rooted and grounded in the truth, and, and we're ready then to recognize the error. Well, now look at verse 31. See an indication of another expectation. Paul writes to now, again, speaking, he's speaking to the elders and says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is asking the elders to model what he did for them. That's that word remembering there. Remember what I did for you as I commissioned you to go and oversee the flock. He says that they should relate to the flock the same way that he related to them. That's what he's challenging them with. These wolves are coming in. They're seeking to devour the flock. So, he says, be alert and remember how I labored among you Now that's how you labor among the flock. We see here that the congregation should expect from its overseers to be encouraged 
in meaningful relationships. Now, let me explain this. What do we mean by meaningful relationships? I think even just in this text, without even looking back in Acts or the rest of the letters, we see right here in our passage these clues to what meaningful relationships look like. First, a meaningful relationship would require an investment of time. Paul's telling the elders, what did I do for you? You do that for the flock. And the first thing he talks about is how for three years, day and night, he poured out truth to these folks. It's an investment of time. Otherwise, he could have just said, for all the time I've been here, I've been teaching you. But instead, he articulates it in such a way that he's saying, there were sometimes it was all day, sometimes he taught into the night, and we could go back to Acts and remember the guy falling out of the window late at night. There's other times when people maybe woke him up in the middle of the night over some dilemma or pastoral need. He said, day and night, for three years, I invested in you. That's what meaningful relationships require. Unfortunately, our culture has bought into this idea that you can really have your friends without any investment of time, right? They're just a number in the bottom corner of the screen. How many friends do you have? Well, Paul would measure his friendships, his meaningful relationships by the investment of time. And what you'll see as we urge you to a next step of spiritual growth in this coming year as we think, what does God have for us as a church? What does he have for your family, for your own heart? Don't be surprised if somebody repeatedly is asking you, hey, who are you getting with during the week? Are you in a small group? Are you meeting somebody for breakfast? Are you reading a book with somebody? Because we cannot escape the reality that it takes time to build a relationship. So meaningful relationships require time, and Paul has modeled that with an investment of years measured in the hours of the day, 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. Paul says a.m. and p.m., three years, that's the time it took to invest in meaningful relationships, the body of Christ. Second, a meaningful relationship would require an investment of truth. Paul says, be alert, remembering how for those three years, day and night, I didn't cease to admonish you. That's the word we really use for the first point as well, to warn, but it can also be used here in our second point because it's a word that has to do with teaching and truth. It's a word that means to put something in your head to get it in your mind. And so parents are told by the use of this word to bring up your children in the nurture and admonishment of the Lord. Put in their heads truth. God has to work it into them so that they believe it. But you can put it in their head, so to speak. You can make sure they hear again and again, as the Psalms would tell us to do, of the faithfulness of God of his mighty deeds. We keep putting it in their head. We admonish them. And that's Paul's word here. He says, my investment of time was in partnership with an investment of truth. Because, frankly, the world can invest time in relationships, and they can hang out for hours and hours, tailgating at the stadium, watching the game together, going out afterwards for drinks or dinner. They can spend a lot of time with their buddies. Some of them maybe to the neglect of family, and they're always just investing time in their friendships. But you see, that's not the sum total of meaningful relationships. It does require time, but the difference between the unbelieving world and the church is that our relationships have this huge investment of truth. When we get together and we share the woes of 
hardships of parenting or being married to these stubborn men that you wives are married to, and, and you get together and you're talking about how life is hard, we have the benefit of saying, what does God say to help us down this path? What does the Bible say that it gives us some encouragement to get it right? We have something the world doesn't have. We have truth. So as we move forward in this coming year, you, the congregation, should expect to be encouraged in or into meaningful relationships. Overseers, as well as other church members doing the one another's, have the right to be prodding you into more relationships that require an investment of time and the utilization of God's truth to make those relationships strong. We see the fruit of this kind of relationship in verse 36. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. The natural conclusion of this conversation or the farewell was a, a word of prayer, a blessing on them and a committing them to the Lord. We should ask ourselves, why does the text include that he knelt down? What, what does posture have to do with prayer? be a great study for you to study the prayers in the Bible and the postures that accompanied them and ask yourself, why don't I do any of that? Maybe you do. But it's there for us. This isn't a sermon on prayer, but it's interesting to see that in studying this fruit of a relationship with time and truth, there's prayer there. And we're told it's prayer with a certain posture. What does that reflect? What does, what does our physical posture express or communicate either in our private prayer or in our public worship? Meaningful relationships. Don't resist them. Don't hide behind a busy schedule. Don't hide behind an introverted personality. Recognize you should be encouraged to engage in relationships. And, you know, there's wisdom in saying no to certain gatherings. You can't do everything. But make sure you're saying yes to something. In some way, investing time and utilizing the truth to help each other down the path of the pilgrim journey. Third, a congregation should expect to be directed to the chief shepherd. Look at verse 32. Paul says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see, Paul's stepping off the scene. For three years, night and day, it's been Paul's voice, teaching with apostolic authority, nothing wrong with it, but now he's stepping off the scene. And that's okay. Paul is not the great hope of the church. And frankly, the elders are not the great hope of the church. Then in Acts 20 or now, we're pressing on in the evaluation of, of adding more elders. But that's not the great hope of the church either. That's the way God has designed oversight. But our great hope is the blessed hope of Titus's writing the chief shepherd, the one whose blood purchased the church. So Paul says, I commend you or I entrust you to the care of another. Though Paul cared for the church, he just invested three years of his life there. He can walk away with a confidence that God is the shepherd of this congregation. Paul commends the congregation, first to the person of God. I commend you to God. I think that's helpful because we probably race to the second commendation a little quicker. I commend you to the word of his grace. I commend you to read the Bible, see the promises of God, see how God's been faithful to his people in the past. And that's all good, but we must remember that the word of God 
is the word of God. God revealed this about himself so that we would know him. Not just the stories about him. Not just that he is strong by theological definition, omnipotent. Not that he is just omnipresent or other big theological words, but that he is a person and we relate to him. This is how the Bible can be very elite or we might say academic or full of rich theology, but it can also be suffer the little children to come. This can make sense even to the little ones on your knee. It's both. God is a person. And Paul says, I commend you to this person, to God, your father. It's his church. He will care for it. He will build it. He will sustain it to the end. The best elders you could have, the best elders you could imagine, are but candles compared to the rising sun of the faithfulness of God. And so elders are called to, to give of themselves night and day, every day, three years. But you need to remember, that's not the great answer. We long to help, and you can come, and we'll try to steer you to the Scriptures, and ultimately to God. We commend you to God, the person of God, and then, he says, you are commended to the promises of God, to the word of his grace. We might call that properly the gospel, this word that has brought to us God's favor on sinful men who were his enemies. God's promises are revealed and they are kept. This is the word of his grace. And Paul says, God himself will care for his church. And God himself has given you his word. Know them both well. In that revealed word, come to know the person of God. The congregation should expect to be pushed to know God through the study of the Bible. You know, in the old days, ministers, pastors would travel around and visit their congregation. They would do it often, and then and they would stay for a while. Um, and they'd ask hard questions. It's what we know of as catechism. You thought that was only for those Catholic school kids, you know, in their uniform at the street corner in your neighborhood. But the catechism was really designed uh, and used for even the adults. And so a minister would come into the house, and he'd start asking questions. And he'd keep asking those same questions till you knew the answer and could find it in the word. You should expect to be pushed to know God. You should, you should expect someone to, to be able to come up to you in the greetings on Sunday morning and say, hey, do you read anything good this week in the Bible that could help me? And not be caught flat-footed. You should expect people to say, how are you doing in your Bible reading? You should expect that because we are a people who are supposed to know God through the word that he has given us. So expect to be pushed. Expect to be challenged. Expect the expectation that you would be in the word. Finally, a congregation should expect to be called to diligent service. Paul makes two arguments in his closing remarks that begin in verse 33. I coveted no man's gold or silver or apparel. He says that he worked to provide for him and the guys he's with. We know that from the book of Acts. He, he made tents and he'd show up and he could set up shop and then also do teaching and discipleship. Then he says this in verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So he, he's making two points there. In all things I have shown you that. First, 
By working hard in this way, we help the weak. And remember that the words of the Lord Jesus to us were this, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So what do we learn about diligent service? Number one, hard work should be accompanied by a heart to help the weak. Hard work should lead to helping the weak. This is the diligent service that Paul's talking about. He says, I worked hard. We provided for our own needs. But working hard means I have to give to those who are weak. Now, there's a balance to this teaching. And it's the wisdom of Proverbs. If you don't work, if you're not diligent in the harvest, then you don't eat. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. See how she works and toils and saves up and then has what she needs. So we are right to look at someone and expect them to work in order to get what we would call charity. The problem is we're so good at that that we never find any need to help anyone who is weak because weakness now is always, see what Social Security has done to this nation? And it's always a political statement of how I don't have to help them. I worked hard for my money. They're not working hard. And and we've lost a place for obeying by working hard in this way. We must help the weak. So we need to figure out this expectation of diligent work that leads to serving others. It's those who have the ability helping those who do not have the ability. I get it. At times, they should be doing better. But perhaps because of their own sinful choices and their own laziness, they are now categorized as unable, weak. And those who are able and have worked hard are being told that By the leading of the Spirit, you help those who are weak. I want us to see the gospel in this kind of work ethic. Jesus doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. So if Jesus took our policy on charity and handouts, he'd come to sinners and say, listen, it's your own mess. You did it. It's your own fault. The the inability is all on you. Why should I do anything for you? I worked hard and I kept the law and I modeled perfect righteousness. If you don't have any of your own, that's your own problem. But that's not the gospel. So somehow we need the wisdom of Proverbs and not facilitating a sluggard. And we need the mind of Christ and the heart of the gospel that says, I'm able and I'll help the inable. And don't be afraid to share that very gospel when you do help someone in need. When you do some act of kindness or bring some gift. And oftentimes people don't understand that and they're like, oh, you shouldn't have. And and just say, no, I'm I'm just giving you an example of the love that God showed to me when I was in need. And maybe that conversation will go further. But I think if we would work hard and have to give to those that are in need, it has now just pushed open that gospel message that we can articulate to them. And yes, it can always be balanced with wisdom. But let's, let's make sure that we're not waiting on the wisdom and never on the helping the weak. Hard work to help the weak. You know, we see that in Ephesians chapter 4. When our life is changed and we put off the old man and we put on the new, he tells the one who used to steal to steal no more, but rather to labor with his hands. Why? So that he might have to give to him who is in need. It's just interesting how it's not often that our, you know, our work is all about us building an empire. As a matter of fact, the I have many barns and I'm going to tear them down to build bigger barns is actually put on the bad list. 
that mindset of it's all for me, I've worked hard for it, isn't what we're called to in Scripture. We're called to sacrificial service. But then he also adds this saying of Jesus that we don't have recorded for us anywhere in the Gospels. That shouldn't surprise us when you get to the end of the Gospel of John. John says there's many other things I could have written about Jesus, and they would have filled all these volumes of books everywhere. So this isn't surprising that we see, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said And we can't go back and find that anywhere. That's all right. That's not troubling. John told us this would happen. Here we are told, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, to write what Jesus had said. And it's a phrase that you've probably heard before. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, let's close by thinking on what this means. To be clear, receiving can be a huge blessing, right? You probably just did some receiving this time of year. Oh, somebody gave, yes, but somebody received. And and you've been on the receiving end of, of meals or monetary gifts or people helping you with a project. Uh, you know what's that, what that is like. And frankly, he just told these people, to work hard and to give to those who are weak. So the receiving is built into that. In no way is he saying we should only be givers and not receivers. Receiving is good. It's a wonderful blessing. Again, it's what we did when God pours out his grace and shows us Christ. So the weak are blessed, certainly, by the kindness and the giving of others. But giving, he says, giving is the path to what appears to be this greater joy. A greater joy than even just having an immediate need met. I was weak and someone who had more helped me out. I'm wonderfully blessed by that. I'm no longer in need. I've been helped. There's joy there that that constraint isn't there anymore. But there's a greater joy Or perhaps we could say a truer gain that comes by giving. Now, admittedly, Paul is is forcing us to think on multiple planes. Working hard and getting money that we have in our accounts, and we use that money to buy stuff to help someone who's weak. But he's also clearly indicating that there's this other plane of satisfaction, of, of blessing, of joy that comes in being a person who is ready to be a giver. The purest joy will be for those who have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, which is a mind to sacrificially serve others to get them in a place of greatest usefulness, greatest blessing. Jesus saw our sinful need and knew for us to be successful in God's eyes, we need to be dressed in righteous robes, and he accomplished that for us. So our task, having the mind of Christ, is to always help someone else look better, be better in God's eyes. How do I help them grow spiritually? And sometimes that takes sacrifice. But the the help from this text is that we accept by faith the reality that there will be this true gain and true joy that comes in serving others. In John 13, a Bible example, Jesus, the master and teacher, washes the feet of the disciples who refuse to wash each other's feet. And then he tells them that they should serve each other following the example he just gave them of humbling himself to serve. And then he adds this, if you know these things, well, they did. He had just told them. So what he's really saying is if you take this to heart, if you, if you take on this idea of serving others, he says, happy are you if you do them. This true joy, the blessedness comes in serving others. It, it's paradoxical. 
It, it won't seem to make sense to us that by giving away what I worked hard for, I worked diligently and now I give it to the weak. Yes, but remember, the promise is you'll be more blessed in that giving than in the expenditure of that gain that you had rightly for yourself. Your hard work accumulated that and you could spend it. And at times we should and we do. And we enjoy all kinds of good gifts that God gives us. But the text says, remember, when you do work hard and have and you give it away and it looks like a sacrifice, it's actually a net gain. You know, sometimes we look at this common expression and we think, oh, see, when you give instead of get, that's the true heart of Christ. That's true, but remember, this, this phrase is dangled out there like a carrot, like an incentive. It is blessed to give. In other words, it's a simple instruction. Do this and you get something. I tell my dog, sit. And when she sits, she gets a treat. <laughs> She's been conditioned. Well, we think that, oh, yeah, giving away, giving away, that's blessed. That's what I'm supposed to be, a giver, not a getter. But remember, the Bible is saying this is the path to joy. You get something. You get something from God. It's his promise that you will be blessed when you are a giver. But it's the two planes we have to get straight in our mind. Yes, I give of my time. I give of my money. I pour out myself. Paul would say that in his ministry. But it was gain. It was all for gain. So this text isn't about giving stuff away and I'm always on the short end of the stick. No, it's actually you're better off when you accept by faith the promise of God that a giver a giver with the mind of Christ will be far more blessed than any recipient. Jesus also taught his own disciples this very truth, that the way to truest gain is by loss. He said in Mark chapter 8, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The way to get truest gain, truest joy this week is to give. Sure, we can temper it with all the wisdom, but it has to be giving. You've got to be a giver, or you'll never, you'll never be satisfied. You can't gain enough to be satisfied. That's why in that same text of Mark 8 about losing your life, he goes on in the next verse to say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You can't gain enough to say, oh, I'm good. This works for me. You can only gain by becoming a giver because that's the heart of the gospel. That the one who had everything gave it up in order to save us. We read that in the Christmas season. That he who was rich became poor. That you through his poverty might become rich. The only way to gain is to become a giver. That's the point of Paul closing this farewell by saying, I didn't covet anyone's stuff. I worked hard in my own hands to provide for me and my team. And I'm demonstrating to you what it takes to be a giver. So remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I say the same thing to you this morning. Remember that this week. Remember it's more blessed to give to your spouse, to give to your children, to give to your parents, to give to your boss, to be a person that's known as a giver. And if that's your reputation and people are always saying, well, thank you so much, or you're so kind, or you're such a hard worker, or you're so steady, you're so generous, don't start soaking that up, which maybe you've been doing. Rather, remind them, God was generous to me. God was kind to me. God gave to me. 
Whatever word they use, use the same word and just give them that nutshell of the gospel. But just know this battle will rage every day in our hearts. That army of selfish getting, fighting against that army of sacrificial giving. And what Paul is saying to the elders and then to the congregation below them, don't be surprised when you're asked to serve, when you're asked to help, when you're asked to work hard for someone else. That's the nature of the body of Christ, the church. So this text definitely has its warning. Remember the wolves tearing up some poor sheep or cow. There's those warnings against theological drifting, but there's also these warnings against personal apathy. That I would show up at a church and just expect someone else to do the work when the word expect is actually turned on the congregation and say, here's what you should expect. Here's what this text is saying elders should be expecting of their congregation. As a believer... The local church is this context where you will be challenged to follow God by the study of his word and in the humble service to others. And this is the path to that happy new year we're all longing for. It's not wrapped up in our circumstances. It's wrapped up in our obedience to the word that we've seen today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text Thank you for your love for your church and our prayers that you would increase our love for your church. Our love for you. Our love for serving. And this will happen by faith. Faith in you. Faith in your word and faith in your promise that it is indeed blessed to be a giver. May this week look different than it may have because we give attention to these words. We see ourselves in the mirror of this text, and we make some changes, and we go from here ready to serve. Lord, carry us into this new year with our eyes fixed on you, heeding the warning of Scripture, knowing the, the, the heavy pull of worldliness every day all around us, May we fix our eyes on you. May our hearts be calibrated by the truth of your word so we know exactly where we're going and what we're doing in the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.